Life Audio. Hey, welcome to the Happy Ramp Podcast. I am Ted Cluck, joined as always in studio by my good friend, my partner in radio, Barnabas Piper. Pipe, just you and me again today. Um, the boy's on sabbatical, but uh, he's as elusive as ever these days. So uh, He, he you know said what? he had an early morning counseling appointment, um, and I wasn't sure if he was doing the counseling or receiving the counseling, and it felt inappropriate yeah. to ask. Yeah. So, I'm assuming doing being that he is the uh, he is the 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 seasoned man of the cloth on this show. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Do you do much counseling in your in your job? Uh, yes, but not. I mean, what's the difference between pastoral conversation and counseling? That's a great question, dude. Yeah, that's a great question because. I don't know. I think we're calling a lot of things counseling now that we used to just call conversations. But, right. When uh, somebody's like, hey, I'm struggling with something and they, they need prayer or they just want to talk through how to think about something like there's counsel there. Yes. But I don't like I to me, counseling seems more like this is somebody who is in the thick of something, you know, very difficult and ongoing. And you meet with them with regularity over time. Yeah. Uh, and so I would say I do a fairly small amount of that. And then there's a lot of the other thing where it's just people are at a rough spot in their marriage and they just want to talk for a little while or uh, figuring out job stuff or not sure about the direction in life or don't find any joy in the Lord or whatever. And that doesn't seem like counseling as much as just pastoring. Pastoring, being a good friend, et cetera. Yeah, but social calculus-wise, here's the interesting thing, right? So... If you say to your podcast co-hosts, I have a counseling appointment, that's unassailable, right? But if you were to say to your podcast co-hosts, I'm, miss- I'm missing the show again because I'm, I'm getting breakfast with a buddy and we might talk about his marriage or we might talk about, you know, <laughs> a job change that he has coming up or whatever. Like it's, it's more unassailable to call it a counseling appointment than to call it like I'm just hanging out with a friend. <laughs> Um, and, and on that front, it's actually to the pastor's benefit because, you know, there, there's there's kind of two impressions of people in the clergy. One is they're the hardest working people alive. And I'd say like 10 percent of people <laughs> think that maybe 5 percent. Yeah. And then there's the what do these guys do between Sundays impression, which is yes. the other 90 to 95 percent of people. So yeah. when you can say I do a lot of counseling Right, it, it fills in your other days significantly. Obviously, there's a lot more yeah. to the job. Maybe not. Yeah. Obviously, there there is a lot yeah. more to the job. Yeah, there but, should be. You know. But when you but but when people's impression is you spend all day having coffee with folks and talking to people, <laughs> how is that different than a therapist? Except that they're getting paid more than we are, and they don't yeah. drink as much coffee. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, the optics on it are important. And speaking of optics, uh, I, I hate for Ronald to miss this show because we're going to talk about people photographing themselves and people's relationships with photographs and how that's changed over time. We're also going to talk about uh, an interesting payment arc thing that you brought up, Pipe, and we'll do all of that after this quick break. All right, Pipe, we're back. Uh, you and I both have teenage kids. Uh, I have a kid who's 20 and a kid who's 17. 
uh, you have teenage daughters who are in high school and you mentioned this idea of a payment arc and you ran it by me off air and it sounded like it really resonated. Can you give us a, a thumbnail sketch of what this is and then we'll talk about it? Yeah, so I, I made the observation, um, you know, thinking about different points in life and then observing my kids as they are as they are approaching adulthood that there's a, you know, like in teenager at, at the, you know, when you're a teenager and then into your, you know, college years, early 20s, you buy the cheapest of everything, you know, yes. you still think McDonald's is good. You, uh, you know, you just you buy what you can afford. You're cheap which also means like you buy 17 pairs of shoes every two years because you, you burn through them because you bought the $8 flip-flops or whatever. Mm -hmm. Then you pivot from that to, oh, quality matters, and you start buying high-end stuff. And sometimes it's quality. Sometimes it's um, it's ego. It's brand-related. Yeah. So not I don't want the cheapest. I want yeah. the coolest or the best. So yeah. then you overspend on everything. That's often where you end up in credit card debt. Mm -hmm. Then somewhere around... I don't know, wherever maturity comes in their late twenties, thirties, you start to learn about value. So you do a little yeah. market research, you're going to spend the money, but you're not necessarily going to get the top end thing. You're going to get the best version for the money. You have a better right. sense of your budget and a better sense of the thing. So you, you buy value. Mm -hmm. And then as you age, you get cheap again. Mm -hmm. And, <laughs> and that, you know, that like you end up back at like Applebee's instead of yeah. the nice new restaurant in town. You, you end up being like, ah, what we don't, you know, we don't need that high end stuff. Let's just, you know, like my dad just wears Dockers or whatever, you know, yes. like you just sort of get yeah. the, just the, you're <laughs> just going to go cheap. You're going to buy, yeah. buy used. You're going to do whatever. So it's the arc from cheap to most expensive to value to cheap. Yeah, no, that's fascinating, dude. And I've got so many questions vis-a-vis -vis your dad, but also I, I want to ask you a kid-related thing. Uh, something I started noticing about Tristan, my oldest especially, um, and I don't mean to, like, kill him on this. It's it's mostly his friend group. Like, when they will go out to eat, and I noticed this a year or two ago when he was finishing up high school slash starting college. Like, they don't go cheap. Like, when I, when I was that age, it was, like, Taco Bell and McDonald's, and we felt like real high rollers just, like, being out of the house, spending some money. They go to, like, sit-down places. And, like, he'll come back from, like, the other night he played tennis with his friends and then, like, grabbed some dinner. And I'm like, oh, where'd you go? And he's, like, you know, naming these sit-down places that are, like, places where I take my wife for a date, you know? And, like, it's where he and all of his sweaty buddies, like, flop down to, like, get some dinner after tennis and i was like i don't know how you're making this work financially you know like i i feel like i couldn't afford those places until i was 30 but uh somehow some way it's it's working out and um i've, I've noticed he and his friend group have done this for a while are your girls sort of into that stage of life yet uh, only to a, only to a degree. I think I, I think it has a lot to do with group of friends. I mean, I just yeah. like to point out that you have a son named Tristan who plays tennis. So th <laughs> there's a there's a certain there's a certain trend there that I'm noticing yeah. as well. But uh, I, I also realize like you didn't raise a tennis playing Tristan. You you raised no. you you raised a football playing and and, uh, sure. and not snobby you know, exactly. Sweater exactly. over the shoulders kit. But I do right. think friend group has a lot to do with it. No, my, uh, my older daughter is the one who can, who can drive herself around. And like she and her friends are very much in the, like 
they're just very teenager it, in the same way mm-hmm. that that I would have been where like they go do a bonfire by a lake or they like hang out in the speedway parking lot drinking slurpees or whatever <laughs> yeah. they call those things yeah whatever yeah. slurpee is the 7-eleven version yeah and uh you know and they'll go get ice cream they drink a ton of coffee you know mm-hmm. whatever whatever bougie coffees yeah and only occasionally will they like they'll go out to eat at like a sports bar kind of place nearby but that's not their yeah. norm so yeah i would still put her very firmly in the cheap category yeah now when it comes to like buying clothes she is moving from cheap into the very high end where she's like, I want the, the $57 t-shirt. Yeah. Which is yeah. not better than the $12 t-shirt. Exactly. And that's a, that's a fascinating conversation to have. So I think it's a little bit different with boys. My, my guys are very utilitarian about their fashion still. Like, um, I don't think Tristan would go $57 on a t-shirt. I, I think that, that may be more the purview of girls, as is like coffee as destination thing. Um, you know, I, I think I told this this story on the program recently. Having traveled with my my college students, like getting coffee is a part time job for them. You know, they do it multiple times a day. It takes forever. Um, it's an activity. Like it's a it's a destination thing, and the the order is complex. If your order is simple, you're sort of you know, less than, um, the order is like a, like a personality test. It's like the Enneagram, you know, that, that little <laughs> it's so sticker true. that comes with the coffee. It's like paragraph length that says some things about you, you know, um, like this is, this is the experience of getting coffee with, with college students nowadays. I, so I have a, I have a dad related question. Did your dad ever go through in this arc of payment? Did he ever go through like, a moment of kind of being a ponce, like, hey, I got myself some new jeans. They were 120 oh, bucks, you know. Yeah, fun John Piper story, or, yeah. or rather sort of snapshot. He was that guy in college, like high school really? and college. So I, I don't I don't think he was, like, loud about it verbally, but he yeah. was, like, a sharp dresser, and uh-huh. he drove a 1966 gold fastback convertible. Oh, let's go. In, in the... Like maybe maybe up through his seven uh, seminary years, so like yeah. up through the early seventies, late sixties, early seventies. Yeah, and so like picture like late sixties, early seventies. Like he would wear, you know, kind of like the checkered pants and the you yeah. know the wider collared shirts. And he was you know he wasn't like gold chains and flashy, but like <laughs> yeah. kind of whatever the preppy version of nineteen sixty nine, nineteen seventy was. Oh, that's fascinating. And then he went to Germany and got his doctorate and, and like, has not taken off his tweed coat since. Yeah, so, dude, that's wild. There was Germany, like, reset his persona. Well, it was that. And then I think during his time teaching post, post-doctorate is also when, he, you know, there was, a, there was a kind of a theological development there of, yeah. you know, and he became very kind of at odds with wealth, uh, sure. it, at least personally and kind of for everyone else, too. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. Dude, that's fascinating. I, I've seen some of the, the same things in my own dad in that I know that when he was in college, he had like a 1965 Mustang. It was yellow. Um, I've seen pictures of it. And like late 60s, early 70s, yeah, he was like the fashionable guy in like bell bottoms, the big mustache, you know, the big mutton chop sideburns. 
like kind of a cool hat like he was that guy but now he's like anti-fashion he's he's like bill belichick you know he's just um, like dickies every day well yeah more like jeans or like even even like workout gear or whatever the the okay you, you know and, and it's not sort of new stuff you know and i don't know i just sometimes I, I wonder where that fashionable guy went you know what i mean or what changed it i maybe it's a maybe it's like a career in ministry thing because right after college he did some time in ministry uh before he became a pilot so maybe it's the ministry that like hammers the fashion out of you although it doesn't seem to be now like that you can well, that swing means, yeah that's yeah. true every, every you know pastors everywhere are wearing the 200 dollars Erwin mcmanus t-shirts but um, <laughs> exactly the there's something to be said for just like you know because we we make fun of old men you know yeah. 50 plus mm-hmm which we're both fast approaching. So at some yeah. point we're going to have to pivot on who we make fun of, but exactly. uh, men who are too old to dress the way they do. And that could be 35 year old. That sure. could be a 55 year old. That could be an 80 year old. Granted, I don't make fun of a lot of 80 year olds. Cause I'm like at 80. Yeah. If you want to, if you want to wear like joggers and a hoodie or, yeah. you know, you want to dress like Erwin McManus at 80, go get it. I'm proud yeah, of you. That's right. You've um, been around for eight decades. You know, you've it, earned it. If you're doing it at 60, you look like an idiot. Yeah, um, for sure. But there, there comes a point where, like, fashion, you either lean in or you punt. There's yeah. not a lot of middle ground, which is why most dads look like dads. Like, yeah. you know, I was I was scrolling through Instagram the other day, and there was some, um, you know, there was a, there was a video about uh, somebody throwing a dad-themed party for their neighborhood Oh and so th- basically everybody just had to show up in their best stereotypical dad uniform. Yeah. And so it's like knee length jorts, crew socks, white shoes, oversized short sleeve button down, untucked <laughs> fanny pack, you know, all this stuff. And I'm like, yeah. okay, I don't see a lot of dads dressed like that. Maybe I don't go to Disney World enough. But uh, yeah. but also when you look at that, you're like, that's, that's a dad look. Dude, that's wild. And that the concept of that party as an ironic thing that's the most like affluent nashville thing ever like because the subtext in it is we're all way too cool to look like this but we're also probably like old enough to be actual dads like these are the kind of dads that you see at like um you know the 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 biscuit barn in franklin where breakfast is <laughs> 74 dollars a plate and they're wearing like their black crossfit t-shirt with a flat brim cap and the mm-hmm. You know the the real squared off beard, and um, you know, so they're they're kind of doing the dad thing ironically, while also being actual dads. That's right, but uh, you're also a dad, right? Um, it's it's just strange that like being a dad has become like this memeable thing for for white people. You know what I mean? It's it's kind of it, crazy. It seems like it. You know, you know. So stereotypically, for a long time, like. I'm too young to be a grandparent was kind of a thing, especially yes. for grandmas, you know, like, yeah. oh, don't call me grandma. I feel right. like we're now at that point with dad. Like you're you're 39 years old and you have a two-year-old yeah. and like, you don't want to look like a dad. I'm like, you're 39 yeah. years old and you're carrying a diaper bag. Like what else do you think you look like? <laughs> exactly. And and I don't mean that as an insult. Like, right. Yeah. Like, dads are dads. It's what we do. Dads are dads. <laughs> it's what we do. It's it's a noble thing. You know, you, you go through that like decade when your kids are young where i don't know you're carrying sippy cups and 
like there's a little patina yeah, of like I, Cheerio dust on your shirt, and it's it's kind of a yeah, badge like of you honor, got, you know. You always yeah, like a little, little spit up or a little drool somewhere on you. And right. I, I, I have this distinct memory of being in my mid twenties, and you know we had we had driven from Chicago up to Minneapolis to, to uh, visit family, and I'm unloading our our car, and I pull out a barbie back no it's a hello kitty backpack with like barbies hanging out of it and i'm Mm -hmm. carrying a cooler full of juice boxes in the other hand and i'm like you know it's just sort of one of those oh this is who i am moments where yeah you know so at like 26 or whatever like i'm just fully dad of tiny children yeah and uh yeah and like i wasn't cool I was in, right. you can't be cool and carry, carry Hello Kitty backpacks. I'm sorry. No, and, you're uh, right, man. And that's okay. It is. And the, the kind of the cool thing about that moment is you sort of, I mean, there's a, there's a spiritual component. We could take it real serious, but like you do kind of die to yourself and that's part and parcel of being a parent, right? So part and parcel with having kids and caring for them is you spend less time thinking about yourself, right? So yeah, your your sense of like being on the razor's edge of fashion is probably going away while you're a dad, or it should. You know, I mean, if if to be fair, I was only ever on like the razor's handle of fashion, but yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly, razor adjacent. You know, that's right. You could, you could I was, see I was nearby on the counter. Yeah, 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 exactly. But um, yeah, which is why like when I do see these like ultra fashionable Franklin, Tennessee dads, I'm like. Do you even know your kid's name? You know, you seem to spend a lot of time like looking at well, yourself. They, they better because they probably made it up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He's he's named after like the, you know, the bass player in some band you've never heard of. But well, uh, I think what I mean, I don't know how much those parents are doing that stuff for themselves versus I I I think some of it is like they don't want to be embarrassment to their kids. Yeah, but the fact is, your kids are just going to be embarrassed by you at some point anyway. Hundred like, percent. I've, yeah. I've worked pretty hard not to intentionally embarrass my kids just out of like, I always thought it was, I just didn't ever like it when parents would just sort of be super awkward and, and make their kids feel dumb. So I was like, I'm not going to do that. You know, yeah. like, oh, is this your girlfriend kind of thing? I was like, no, nah, I'm, right, not, I'm right. not doing that stuff. I'll try to just be even keel. But the fact is that like, they still don't want to hang out with me the way that they did when they were eight. Yeah, I have a good relationship with them. We have a good time together, but like they need time with their friends, and I'm gonna yeah. give them their time. Like I'm not gonna come down and be like, "Who needs snacks?" You know, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and and there's just comes a time where like they're just not that impressed by you, and their friends aren't either. Like, yeah, if I dress super fashionably, my teenage daughter's friends are not like your dad's a sharp dresser. I'm just a dad. <laughs> like, there's a yeah, whole category exactly. of dad. You cease to exist. Yeah, and it's kind of like, nice. Yeah, you are just you're just you're just wallpaper. Yep, your your wallpaper, your beige, and it's great. You know, like it's, and it's, it's appropriate. Really like, great. why should yeah. I want? Why should I want my daughter's friends to think anything about me other than, oh, that's Grace's dad. Yeah, like, that's that's entirely right. He opened the door. He let us in. That's that's the extent of it. No, that's good, dude. I've got a I've got another question on that, and uh, then the picture thing right after this break. All right, dude. Um, I had a, I had a like a laser specific question on this, and then we cut to the break, and I forgot what it was. Um, shoot. So let let's talk about pictures. I've been wanting to talk about people's relationships with pictures 
And this kind of came to my attention while watching my friends get ready for graduation parties. So uh, I had a, a couple of friends who had kids graduate high school um, this last month. And these graduations were like exercises in going through thousands of pictures and <laughs> picking the right pictures to convey the right thing about the right kid. And, you know, for them, the pictures were really important. For everyone else, the pictures were, t as you said, wallpaper, you know, something you, you know, walk by for two and a half seconds at a party and glance at. Um, but it made me think about how, for my oldest, he's 20. He kind of came of age right at the end of like analog pictures. So right at the end of like taking some pictures, going to Walgreens, getting them, you know, published or printed or whatever we used to call it. Developed uh, is the word we used to call it. And so we have all these boxes of like pictures of him. But Maxim came along right at the front end of like taking pictures on your phone. Um, so most of our pictures of Maxim are like digital right. and I gotta tell you, we don't have much of a relationship with our pictures. I mean, they, they kind of get taken and then forgotten. Um, I don't know where I'm going with this other than people seem to have a really interesting relationship with their pictures. Oh, I remember what, I remember what the dad thing was. Let's get this real <laughs> quick and then, yeah. and then we'll get back to the picture thing. Um, I think the internet has made it so that for a particular kind of dad, you can, if you do the work, like if you do the homework, you can be somewhat like up to date on like, you know, meme culture and knowing what people are talking about on the internet. My question to you is, do you know dads who try to do this and do you try to do it? Uh, the answer to the first question is yes, I do know dads who try to do it. And um, it's it's almost always with it. It's almost always at, at, at one end of the spectrum or the other. It's either with their first kid who is coming of age. So yeah. they're still trying to keep up or it's their last kid. You know, they have four kids or something mm -hmm. and there's a bit of an age gap and they're like they're they're trying to sort of make the most of it. Yeah, it's never the middle kids. And, uh, and it's usually, yeah. And, and, and it usually doesn't last like, so middle school mm -hmm. trying a lot harder, get into mm -hmm. high school. This, the, the kids just outpace us. That's what it yeah. comes down to. The answer to the second question is, is no, I don't try. Like mm -hmm. I, I pick up on stuff here and there, Yeah, you know, I'm familiar with how to use urban dictionary. So when my kids uh -huh. say stuff, I will quietly look it up to be like, what the <laughs> heck? Did... But, yeah. but it feels more like urban dictionary is just parents. Google translate. Yeah. You know, so it, you can do it from Spanish to English. You can also do it from teenage to adult language. And sometimes right. you're like, oh, that's horrifying. The words that just came out of their mouth. And sometimes you're like, oh, that's an expression that is as dumb as some of the stuff that I said when I was 17, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so there's a, I, I don't, I don't uh, try to keep up. I do try to not be utterly confused. Yeah. It's interesting. I was thinking the other day about, how much information just sort of trickles down to me from my students. So like a week ago, I have these, these two guys in my program who I talk about music with and they texted me and it was like a PSA. They were basically like clock. Hey, just FYI, Taylor Swift and Maddie Healy are dating. Maddie Healy's from the 1975. And, uh, I was like, Oh, thanks guys. Like, 
I would have never heard that. Like, I would have come back to school in the fall not knowing that. And it's not like it it enhances my life to know it, but I thought it was kind of sweet that they just kind of wanted to they wanted to drift it across my transom, you know. I um, I'd like to I'd like to earn some dad cred here and say uh I don't you, know who or what the 1975 is. Yeah. That uh, that sounds like it could be a bar. Yeah. It sounds like it could be a war movie. <laughs> Yeah, about exactly. you know the, like post Vietnam, post Vietnam, yeah, yeah. It could be, uh, it could be a band, but I don't know what yeah. genre this band would be in. Yeah, and and Maddie sounds yeah. like a lady's name to me. So yeah. I'm going full dad right now, and the thing is, I'm not even really being ironic about it. That's good dad stuff, dude. That's really good. Let me explain the 1975 because I I really do enjoy this band, and. They've been around. I'm gonna get the I'm gonna get the timetable wrong. I feel like they've been around for a decade because I feel like when we were doing our little stint in France, that's when I became aware of the 1975. Uh, they're British. They're a pop band. Um, it, like truly, their songs are unique. I really enjoy them. I think Matty Healy's a good songwriter. I don't know music, dude. So like all the all the Nashville hipsters who are listening could could tell me all the reasons why my take sucks about the 1975 but i just enjoy listening to them i think and we have more listeners who yell "Freebird" than who are nashville hipsters so <laughs> i think you're okay i'm good yeah but maddie is like uh, you know how all rock stars are like older than you think they are they're like 38 but they act like they're 26 you know um he probably falls into that category but he's got some natural charisma and I'm kind of just interested by people who are charismatic in any walk of life. And that would apply to him. And he's he's got the kind of typical rock star resume of, I don't know, substance abuse and having dated a bunch of famous people already. So, like, his his sort of alignment with Taylor Swift is, I guess it's, it's kind of interesting. But um, his, his thought, career arc is, I now want to be the subject of songs rather than write the songs. That yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and kind of the kind of the general take about this relationship is like the breakup albums on both sides are going to be spectacular. You know, um, we're we're going to get some good like breakup media as a result of as a result of this relationship that I'm sure is doomed to failure. But um, I don't know. I thought it was kind of sweet that they that they wanted me to know about that. But then I was like, I'm 47 years old. I probably shouldn't know about that. You know, not that it's bad to, but it just it doesn't make any sense for me to know about it. Um, so you're not knowing about the 1975 is actually kind of a that's that scans as appropriate to me. I'll say that. So I'm doing I'm doing um, a little internet research right now. And first, I looked up the 1975, and it says mm-hmm. the band was formed in 2002. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, that's that's cool. Yeah. Then I looked up Matty Healy, and it says he was born in 1989. Okay. And if my math is correct, that makes him 13 years old in 2002. <laughs> so is he a late addition to this band, or was were they like a genuine teenage garage band who then hit it big? Yeah, I think more that. I actually have no idea. Like I'm, I don't know. You know, I haven't I haven't done the research on on the 1975. I just I remember picking up one of their records about a decade ago, and really enjoying it. And I kind of picked it up under. It was under the old model of media. Like, I think I heard a song on the radio, which makes me sound 94 years old. And I liked the song, so I picked up the album. And I've, I've kind of been in on them a little bit ever since. But 
Um, yeah, Tur- I don't know. Turns out they did form a band as teenagers. So I I will say uh, I have gained. I don't know anything about them. I don't know that I've ever heard any of their music, but I yeah. dig the fact that that they started playing music together in what Wikipedia calls secondary school and what we in the United States I think would call high school. But yeah. uh, that's pretty cool that they're still that they're still performing. And I hope Taylor doesn't break the band up. Yeah, no, I know she she might do a Yoko Ono thing on the 1975. That'd be crazy. Um, here's a weird question, man, and this is probably like. We're we're probably all kinds of horrible for for even considering this. Why do you think she's so bad at relationships? Like the relationship thing has never really worked out for her. I, well, I, I, I kind of find that fascinating. Yeah, I I mean it, we might be terrible for asking. We're just saying the quiet part out loud, yeah. or maybe the thing that everybody says to their friends and not on a podcast. But right, <laughs> I have to imagine that being the most famous pop star in the world you know her or beyonce i mean she's like top yeah. two top two or three yeah makes it impossible to have a normal relationship yeah and i'm trying to remember i was watching a movie recently and it was about somebody got famous and they the, the comment they made was um they're like fame fame changes you but it really changes the people around you. Oh, that's good. So, yeah, that's it, really good. You know, it 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 was no, it was a documentary about um oh, who was it? It was a Scottish singer. Uh anyway, yeah. I can't remember his name. I was my, I walked in on my wife was watching it and uh and I was like that's a really insightful comment because it changes uh-huh. how people interact with you, how people perceive you. They yeah. they dehumanize you. So mm. like Taylor Swift is no longer a person. Right. To the people around her or anybody she meets and then if you want to if you want to mix things you know you want you want to complicate things she is an incredibly wealthy famous and powerful woman Mm -hmm. and there are not many men who equal her on any of those fronts yeah that's a great point she is the most famous most wealthy and most powerful person in every relationship and that creates a weird dynamic, especially because men are often insecure. Sure. Or, but anytime there's a great disparity in that, it can cause tensions. Yeah. 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 And, and just a natural sense of competition or whatever. And also, like, inherent in any healthy relationship. And you know this from being married, and I do too. Like, you have to be able to look at the other person and listen to the other person for long periods of time. And in fact, that that's one of the more joyful aspects of a good relationship, right? Like you want, yeah, when you things want, are going well, that, that that happens a lot. It happens a lot, and it's good, and it's right, and it's normal. But it's at odds with fame, right? So the the fame paradigm says, look at yourself, think about yourself, position yourself, leverage yourself, which is why this is so gross for pastors, right? And it's so gross to see like so many pastors pursuing this because fame is so sort of uh narcissistic for lack of a better term i mean you're gazing at yourself and you're checking your numbers and and all that stuff on the regular so you know being someone who's who's very concerned with fame is at odds with being somebody who could be concerned for someone else you know um unless you're really like a unicorn and and you're really just amazing at doing this um and and if that's the case it's probably god-given you know 
when it's why like if you look at hollywood i I think i think what you're saying is why so many of you know they're, they're obviously celebrity marriages often break down and I yeah. think probably at a higher rate than normal people marriages. Mm-hmm. But those people who are in Hollywood or musicians who have been married for a long time are usually married to somebody who nobody's ever heard of. Yeah. And it's because they have married somebody who there isn't the competition. That person probably has a different sort of capacity to sort of bring that, bring the famous person back to normalcy. Yeah. You know? So like, um, like Dolly Parton's husband who, He's just, he's an incredibly private figure, but they've been married mm-hmm. for like 60 years or something. Wow. And he's just, he, he is the normal for like, so she has public persona and then a very private life where, yeah. where they can be themselves. And I'm glad I know nothing about it. Yeah. Uh, that seems entirely appropriate. And I think, you know, like Hugh Jackman is married yeah. to somebody who, again, wife, mom, they mm-hmm. they have sort of a uh, not reclusive but very private family life. Those kinds yeah. of people, I'm like, yeah, that's uh, that seems necessary to make it in this world. And I, I also think if you are a like so Taylor Swift, if you're a woman, it's probably harder to meet a guy who fits that bill. Yeah, it, partly because of relational dynamics, partly because of how guys view you, partly because. Of, of how what men are looking for in relationships and so like there's just the, the whole dynamic is just off for that yeah. to be a, a thing that's easy to find or uh even possible to find well yeah and if she was if she was going to try to date a peer or an equal like financially it would be like jeff bezos elon musk and michael jordan like those would be those would be all, like the all three profoundly names healthy men oh yeah yeah great dudes um I don't know. I don't actually, I don't know any of those men. They might, they might be great dudes, but, uh, but yeah, Mm, I think we can say with pretty great (laughs) definitiveness. They're not, uh, based on public persona. I think two of them are married. I'm not sure about Michael, but yeah. Yeah. And even just, I I think the other thing is once you're that famous, you, you can't do normal anymore. So uh, mm. the people who I mentioned, they, they entered this committed relationship pre-fame and navigated the rise together. Yeah. Whereas, so like they remember together what it was like to be broke or to be not famous or to work as a waiter or whatever. Yeah. Like once you're, once you're a gazillionaire and famous, you can't like get on a dating site and just meet normal people. You can't, Yeah. you can't go to church like a normal person. You can't go to a bar and meet people. You can't do any of the ways that people meet folks. Right. Uh, because that ship has sailed. I have questions about that. And I'm going to get to those questions right after I, I segue us pipe into our third ad break. And I do so with a, a great attitude. Um, so this is me <laughs> saying, let's take a break. And then we'll get to some more stuff right after. All right. Uh, I have a, I have a fame related question for you related to what you just said. Um, I've long had this theory that everybody who's famous is famous by choice, right? Especially now, especially in the era we're in, like if you're famous, it's because you made moves, you made calculated moves to get yourself there. Um, now I can think of a few people who that's untrue of, uh, namely your dad, being one of them, if, if we're talking about Christian famous, um, you know, I, I, how old was your dad when his first book dropped? Dang near 50, right? 
No, nah, he was a lot younger than that. But yeah, I mean, he was about fifty when he got famous. Yeah, that's so his like, that's Desiring God was probably his first book of significance in terms of yeah. trade, and I think that came out in like eighty six, eighty seven. So yeah. he would have been forty ish. Yeah, so he he kind of became famous under the old paradigm, which was just you do a you do a thing, you make something, a bunch of people decide they like it. Somebody else is doing the marketing for you. Like that was back when publishers marketed books. Um, <laughs> so the publishers doing the marketing. Uh, the so it was a different paradigm. <laughs> what the good old days? Yeah, exactly. Um, before the marketing plan was just like tweet about it incessantly. You know. Um, what do you think of that theory that that under the nowadays paradigm, and I'm thinking kind of ministry here, but but even more broadly, people who are famous are famous because they've chosen it. Um, I think it's I, I don't think it's quite that clean cut, but I think it's I think people I think the consequences of success are more obvious now than ever. So, mm. for example, I think there are people who genuinely love music or genuinely yeah. love acting. Um, and so they get into those things for the love of the performance, the art, yeah, et cetera. And, and fame is a, is a consequence or a byproduct of success in that. Now, m- now more than ever, decisions are made along the way though. If yeah. I do this, this is the possible outcome. Yeah. Whereas like in the eighties and the nineties, like when my dad's, you know, became Christian famous. Yeah you put books out into the world and you just kind of hoped they worked. Yes. And, and then maybe you would get a letter or a phone call from an organization saying, <laughs> hi, we're putting on a conference. Yeah. You know, in, in 12 months, would you be interested in speaking at this conference? Right. And, you know, and then they would like fax over a, an itinerary <laughs> and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. And so it just, it's so quaint. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it, it, that felt, it felt more like, uh, like, you know, farming where yes. you sow a bunch of seeds and maybe something grows if the conditions are right. And, uh, and now it feels more like a lab. Yeah. Where if we include this ingredient and this ingredient under these conditions, this is the likely outcome. And, and, and so I, I think you're right in the kind of the, the overarching sense of very few people arrive at famous without having made decisions along the way to like, this is a choose your own adventure. And they chose that road. They're like, this is the road that that leads more likely to fame. I don't think that it means they all set out to be famous. Yeah, I guess I do. I miss the old model though, where your, your dad did that book because he wanted to do it and he wanted to do the best book he could possibly do. And the stuff was really meaningful for him and he had studied and he probably took his time on it. I mean, it, it probably wasn't something he turned and burned in three and a half months, you know, and then he put it out there. And to your point, yeah, he just waited for like the phone call and the facts to come in as opposed to like chasing it, you know, and promoting and, and, sending emails to people and asking for reviews. And I I don't know, like I, I miss there's something real kind of austere and respectable about that old model where it seemed like fame was more of a consequence, right? Like if you had talent, maybe the fame would find you as opposed to like most of these guys don't have any talent, but they want the fame real bad, you know? 
Yeah, um, it's, the variables on that are a little tricky, though, simply because, like, the, the, the ugly side of what you're saying, mm-hmm. the ugly side of the market that, that, mm-hmm. that existed in the time you're talking about is that publishers could, could make people famous. That is true. Yeah. You know, like there was, I, I remember hearing a, an interview, probably it was, it was in the early days of podcasting. So maybe early two thousands with a guy who he talks about how, you know, he was, he was writing, uh, kind of like, like a, kind of an early Malcolm Gladwell kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So we're talking like early to mid nineties. So well before Gladwell and, and publishers, he's like, he's like, yeah, they just signed me to like an $80,000 advance or a hundred thousand dollar advance yeah because of the model of publishing like recouping that was was a thing they could do sure you know or they they were confident enough they could do it whereas now you know that's those days are gone like yeah yeah you don't get that kind of advance unless you've proven to be a bestseller and even then they're they're reluctant unless you know you're signing a three or five book contract or whatever yeah and so there was just a model so from from the from the creator's side of thing, side of things, fame felt accidental. From the industry yes. side of things, it was still a lab. It yeah. was just, it was like big pharma versus basement right. laboratory. No, that's a good point. And it was like, back in those days, it was like the publisher deciding, okay, we're going to put our money behind this project. We're going to give it a big push. Like, this guy's going to be on every radio show. He's going to be doing some TV um we're making yeah, we're this gonna, happen we're gonna do we're gonna do a book tour yeah. we're gonna pay for placement in every barnes and noble so it's gonna yep. be you know front of store yep um and so forth and now you know that's, none of that they, stuff happens yeah i mean when was the last time a best-selling author ended up on like late night tv or right uh good morning america now you'll still see some on like oprah or some yeah. of these like morning TV shows, but even then, it's like it's not it, real it's, writers though. It's like uh, yeah. I don't know, self help guys or business guys. It's, it's yeah, not ro- romance books and stuff like yeah. yeah. There's there's no literature that's being pitched there or thoughtful books that's being pitched there. Yeah, um, podcasts have replaced that, and podcasts yeah. like I mean, as an author, I say yes to as many podcast interviews as I can. You know, yeah. like I say no if I'm like. A, you look crazy, or B, I just can't do it time wise. <laughs> yeah, and I, I, I don't think the impact of those is very significant. No, um, I mean, we wrote a book as podcast hosts. Yeah, we have hosted this podcast for almost ten years. Yeah, and, and our sales suck. <laughs> so, well, so. and and right by by pure nature of the numbers, we have one of the most successful podcasts in the world. Like if if you're just doing listen notes or whatever metric you're you're following, you know we're in all these countries. We've got all these great like download numbers or whatever. But it's like, did that translate into book sales? It did not. And I mean, the book was largely like, I don't know, a thirteen dollar version of what we do on here. You know, like if you enjoy this, you'll definitely enjoy that. And yet, yeah, there's no one to one. There's no there's no way to translate it. And you would think that this model would be the perfect way to sell a book, right? Because there there's something baked into podcasting that's built on no ability, right? And it's the same reason you go to a conference, you hear an author and you pay full price for the book from a table in the back versus not buying the book at all, right? Because 
you've heard this guy bloviate for 45 minutes and you feel like you know him so now you're like oh i gotta have that book or i gotta try it or whatever um you would think that would work for this format but it it doesn't because i just think the podcast thing is so it's so loud and it's so crowded and there are so many like middle-aged white guys telling you to look at so many different products it's just it all goes into the category of noise at this point and to Uh, clarify our book sales are like they're they're exactly what they're they're kind of in market line when i say suck i just mean like versus having been best sellers and whatever but i think the other thing is and publishers don't know what to do with this so this is not an insult at our publisher or any particular Mm -hmm. publisher the translation between mediums is really confusing yeah we we do statistically we are a top five to seven percent podcast of all the podcasts in the world yeah now we're a far cry from the top one or two percent but that second tier we're right there yeah um and that like you said you look at those you look at those numbers you go this should translate to book sales except that listening to us change topics every 30 seconds talk over each other make (laughs) you know irreverent jokes forget ad breaks all the things that we do so consistently yeah for you know for 30 to 40 minutes at a time has nothing to do with reading yeah that's true like it's the same with like um um athlete memoirs or book or 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 musician musician books so like if uh i'm trying to remember who it was there was a really prominent pop star who put out a book a few years ago. Maybe it was like Christina Aguilera or somebody like that. Yeah. And like it sold like trash. Publisher sure. paid her a ton of money, sold like garbage. Why? Because yeah. listening to four minutes of a song that makes you happy or makes you dance. Yeah. And reading somebody talk about themselves for 280 pages. Yeah. Are, are different universes. Well, by contrast, and I agree with that 100%. I remember when Keith Richards' biography came out about a decade ago. I bought it and I read it and it was like presidential length and everybody bought that memoir. You know, everybody, everybody read the Keith Richards memoir. And I wonder if the difference is Keith Richards mattered in a time when people read, you know, uh, versus Christina Aguilera mattering to an audience in a time where people don't read. I don't know, but it, but it, well, it's interesting. I think, Keith Richards has always like there's always been stories about him like he's the That's man right. the myth the legend I yeah. mean so D- Dave Grohl's um, memoir came out a couple years ago yeah. uh, great book uh, listeners I would highly recommend the audiobook because he reads it and it's actually got more life to it but Interesting. he's another one who that you look at that and you're like man there's some stories to tell there like the sure. the eras and these different things yeah so you know, I think some of it has to do with generation. Some of it has to do with that. Some of it has to do with the kind of music that is put out. Although Dave Grohl is basically pop, you know? So, but, but I think it's the storyteller aspect, but yeah, there's just, it is a, it is a, it is an impossible thing for a publisher to look at a person who's famous in one, you know, one medium yeah, and transition that to, this is going to be a really good selling book. Yeah, It doesn't even work for pastors anymore, you know, for a long time pastor of a large church pastor who oversaw a big network like there was sort of guaranteed sales there yeah not anymore you know like there's and i think a ton of it has to do with the 
the leveling of the market in terms of anybody can publish anything at any time. Yep. I think people have so many options that to stand out above the others is nearly impossible. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think about books that are absolutely best, best sellers. So like, um, all the light we cannot see by Anthony door. Yeah. Absolutely. Phenomenal book. You know, one of the best written books I've read in the last, I don't know, 10, 12 years. Yeah. And most of the people I know have not read it. Those who yeah. have read it love it. And most yeah. people haven't. Like, that's just math. Well, and, and none so, of the... Yeah. 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 And none of the people who have read it would recognize Anthony Doerr if he walked into their office. Whereas, I don't know, I'm thinking an era ago. So let's say like 1980s and 1990s, you had Tom Wolfe, David Foster Wallace, Don DeLillo... You know, you know, kind of the end of um, uh, yeah, the guy slipping my mind. It was like um, Tom Clancy. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you had yeah. all these authors that like the average American could name them and even kind of know what they look like, you know, whereas now there's no famous author. I mean, there are books that do well every once in a while. You know, that gentleman in Moscow thing, which I found to be like mind-numbingly boring that did well had a cool title the guy's got a cool name whatever um but if you walked in the room you wouldn't know him you know well, I, and but books have long been you know we we talk about uh how how people do things just to to you know kind of cast their image you know they're curating yeah. their image books have always been that mm-hmm. you know people go, going back to like the 1700s yeah if there was a a popular author because books books carry with them an intellectual aura. Yes. And so if you say you love a book that is intellectually stimulating or popular, I, I think that's why like I haven't read Gentleman in Moscow. I tried to listen to it and was like, this is not a good audiobook. Yeah. So I'm I'm gonna try to read it. But mm-hmm. I think that's part of the reason that one did so well is because it is a it it ups your intellectual uh status. Sure. To say you could talk about I, yeah. I loved this book. You yeah. Know, whereas if if you're like, man, I love Fifty Shades of Grey, nobody's yeah. impressed. That's true. Like that's that one. That one doesn't do anything for your image, dude. And here's the magic of a gentleman in Moscow. I mean, it was literally like the triad of cool title, right? Like it's an elite title. It's a really great title. Um, the author had a cool name, Amor Tolls, right? Kind of ethnic kind of not boring you don't really know whatever like cool name looks cool on a cover and then the cover design was elite and you add those three those three things together and then you fold in what you just said which is the this makes me look like a smarter person by nature of talking about it and you have a book that sells really well despite being really boring like that book took a hundred pages to to get started right and I'm not knocking books like that. There are great slow burn stories out there, but that was not one of them. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was bad. And I wanted to like it. You know, I really like, and I should have liked it because I care about Eastern Europe and I'm, I'm in the book business and all, there are all these reasons why I should have liked it, but it was bad. But I, I just think it was impeccably marketed. You know, you got cool title, cool sounding author, good cover design. It gets a push and it, it becomes the well, thing. And as, as long as we're chasing this thing, so the two yeah. books that we've mentioned, All the Light We Cannot See and um, and the Gentleman in Moscow, they both became paradigms for yeah. how other books. So you can now go on Amazon and find 
25 to 100 other books that look exactly like those. Yep. Same typeface, same cover design, yeah. same uh, same everything. Same kind of cadency title, like yes. ambiguously cadency title. Like, yeah, totally. Yeah, it's, you know, <clears throat> one of them, A Gentleman in Moscow sounds like a, uh, a John le Carre spy yeah. novel. I wish so it, it had you know, been one. <laughs> Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. It has sort of that that sort of yeah crisp, clear, innocuous title. All the light we cannot see sounds super metaphorical. So those yep. are the, there's sort of those paradigms. Yeah. There's the there's the way that they did the black and white image on a gentleman in Moscow, and then the sort mm-hmm. of blue hued image of yeah. um what was it Mont Saint Michel or something like that, yeah. and all the light we cannot see. And and you these are just now paradigms for design. That's right. Yeah. Because publishers are just grasping at options, and they're like, "Man, that worked!" So we're just gonna we're just yeah. gonna run it back twenty five times until it stops working. Yeah, it's a copycat league, you know. Um, which is why when someone does something actually clever and actually different and actually unique, it's like how every Christian book cover now looks like. Um, oh, the Ted Ortland book. Um, I'm blanking on the title. The, the gentle the, and lowly. Yeah, gentle and lowly. It's it's all that kind of like um, impressionistic, kind of kind of blurry painting, very soft and kind of welcoming looking. Yeah, um, muted and neutral tones. Muted and neutral. Yeah, yeah. Like you're barely going to notice this book cover, but um, yeah, no, it's funny, man. It's it's probably always been that. Well, way. that's that's because we did the orange radical thing. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, for, for five to 10 years after mm-hmm. 2007 or whatever, like there's, yep. you can, if you've been around publishing, you can peg books by era. You can usually get them within about <laughs> totally. five years. Yeah. Now it, it was harder. It was harder earlier because the, the years extended longer and there was less, you know, kind of, there was less or fewer options. Yeah. But yeah, at this point you're like, oh, that's, that's this kind of book Yep. from this. And I, I got in an argument with my younger daughter. We went to McKay's, um, so, listeners, McKay's is this massive used oh, book and music store. Absolutely There's love it. Two or three across the southeast, and it's—I mean, it's like an excursion, and it's amazing. It is amazing. And and she loves fantasy fiction, which mm-hmm. is I'm totally fine with. But she just grabs books and is like, "What about this one?" And I'm like, "No, not that one." And she's yeah. like, "Why?" And I said, "Because I can tell by the cover that that's not a good book." And she's like, "Dad, you tell me not to judge a book by the cover." Yeah. So I'm like, touche. <laughs> But we do also, it all the time. I'm, not judge- I'm like, I'm not judging a book by the cover. I'm judging a book by 15 years in publishing and having read a thousand books, which means I know exactly what that book is and it's total trash. Yeah. <laughs> and she just, she just thinks I'm being a hypocrite. But you can look at a book and go, no, that one is like smut demonic fantasy, not like right. world building creative character fantasy. No, you're right, man. And uh, yeah, it's it's interesting how accurately you can judge a book by its cover. <laughs> I wish that wasn't true, but uh, but it is. Pipe, we've gone almost an hour on this show. Um, on talk- none of the topics we set out to talk about. On none of the topics we set out to talk about, but uh, but it was an enjoyable journey. Pipe, I'm going to say that we've done what we've always what we've always done, or what we always do. Yeah, what we always do on this program. Uh, we've wandered to and fro throughout some topics, and until next time. We want to take a moment to thank the team at Life Audio for partnering with us on this podcast. 
Be sure to go to lifeaudio.com and take a look at the other podcasts in their network. They've got shows about prayer, Bible study, parenting, and more. In a world where relationships are easily broken and often discarded, the Rebuilding Us Marriage Podcast is your lighthouse, guiding the way to hope, restoration, and transformation in Christ. I'm your host and marriage coach, Dana Shea. Join me as we discuss the necessary tools for rebuilding marriages from adversity, betrayal, and disconnection. It's time to reignite love as we rebuild marriages from the ground up. Listen to the Rebuilding Us Marriage podcast on lifeaudio.com or wherever you get your podcasts.